Welcome back. This is week two of Job with Dr. Ham. Good news is, is we have three weeks left, but after today there will only be two, so that's the bad news. Let's go ahead and open in prayer. Father God, you, you ask us to pray your, with you constantly. You ask us to live our lives with our eyes wide open. This week you spoke to me as we traveled to Youngstown. We came by a very popular, well-known nursery. And I stopped in the middle of February in a nursery because two or three cars were there, the gate was open, and I wanted to see that famous voice that I hear on the radio, Angelo Petiti, at his nursery. And as we walked into the nursery, it was empty. It was barren. And you told me it wasn't the season. And as I looked down this massive nursery, there were no plants. There were packages of seeds in a display case and large bags of fertilizer. And again, you reminded me that everything is in season according to your will. That everything is a process of growth and development that begins with your seeds. That everything requires work and nourishment to grow and that we need to be busy about our tasks to prepare our lives in the ground for the season that you have in store for us. And as we study Job, help us to understand that he too had these needs. And add your blessing to Dr. Ham as he teaches your word, that we might understand them as seeds in our lives each and every day with our eyes wide open and prepared to do the work that you require of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning. Can you hear me? All right. So, uh, <clears throat> At the beginning of each semester for uh, a general education course I teach called the Introduction to the Bible, I ask my students um, to tell me what the gospel is. Tell me what the gospel is. And you'd be surprised what I hear sometimes. <laughs> the, the ones who had been churched or had been in Sunday schools, uh, they, they talk about things like, well, they mention Jesus. Uh, they mention the cross sometimes. They'll mention the resurrection sometimes. Um, so uh, after a while, uh, I start writing things on the board, or, or I'll collect things, and, and I present back to them. So this is your understanding of the gospel, and uh, most of them not. And so uh, the ones who had been discipled and who had been trained, some of them know the Roman way. You might have heard of the Roman road or ways to share the gospel. And... Uh, and then, I, and, and what I usually do, it's, it's kind of a setup. It's almost tricking my students. You're not supposed to trick your students, but it's, it's fun for me. <laughs> <coughs> so <clears throat> I tricked them into giving me some propositional statements, statements you can say yes or no to. So proposition one, 
uh, the human beings are sinful and that God cannot abide in sin. Therefore, we cannot have a relationship with God in sin. Number two, uh, in order to bridge this gap, God created a way to restore uh, that relationship so that we could have a relationship with God. And that way is, number three, uh, Jesus. And usually that goes to something like, Jesus died and rose again if you believe this, right? So there's a belief. So we talk about belief a little bit. Belief is a component of that gospel. And then at the end, of course, uh, again, this is kind of a bit of a mean trick. Uh, <laughs> at the end, it's about heaven. So they talk about if you believe this, then you get to go to heaven. I said, good. All right, we're done. And so <laughs> I write these things down, five very simple statements. So I tell them, so if you know these things or believe these things, then, then you are then a Christian, right? And they're like, most of them will not. So I sucker them into all agreeing with me. And then I say, let's say you really know these things, and what does that make you? And that's, well, a really good Christian, if you have strong convictions about these things. All right. So <clears throat> does Satan know that human beings are sinful? Yeah. Does Satan know that God and sin really doesn't mix? Yeah. Does Satan know that Jesus died on the cross? Yes. Does Satan know that Jesus rose again from the dead? Yes. <laughs> so Satan's going to heaven. <clears throat> Satan's a really good Christian, right? So again, this, this is the fun part for me to sucker them into that, that idea. Uh, because <laughs> I want to challenge them as they, as they come from different backgrounds, some uh, very churched and well-educated in, in the church, and other, place, other students who were, had never cracked open the Bible. Often, after that first lesson, we go to the table of contents and just kind of work through what's in the Bible because they've never opened it up. And So the, my point in doing that is, is trying to get them to understand the gospel as more than just A, B, C, D, and E. If you believe these things, then you, you, then you are a Christian or you're a person of faith. So <clears throat> then what then is the gospel? Then they struggle for a while because they haven't heard it any other way. Uh, and what I remind them is what you just described is almost like fire insurance. You don't want to go to hell, so you've got to buy fire insurance. And this is the way to get it. <laughs> and throughout the semester, what I focus on is the idea of faith. What is faith? Because that's the component that, Je that Jesus talks about a lot. Paul, in fact, says, without, I mean, Paul says that we're saved through faith. What is that faith that saves us? I didn't really understand this until I was a father <laughs> and I had a toddler son. And my son is now 15, and he still remembers doing this because uh, we did it for years until he, he, I couldn't take it anymore. It's the jump hug. Uh, did I ever mention this? So he used to get, uh, when he was yay tall, uh, I think we started when he was younger even, like three years old. He would see me, and as soon as he sees me from any distance, he would start running at me. He used to, that boy was a running fool. He would run everywhere, and he would run at me full tilt. And as high as he could jump, he would jump at me, and I would catch him, and I would hug him. So he would call it a, a jump hug, because he would jump at me, and I would hug him. <clears throat> when he was six or seven, he would reach all the way. I don't have to bend down anymore, but I have to brace myself, right? 
six or seven, uh, he's starting to get bigger. And, and I, think, I think we stopped around age eight. Because uh, at that point, I couldn't grab him anymore. <clears throat> he would have knocked me over. Now he's as tall as me. Uh, so he's in high school. If he tried to do that now, he would kill me. So I think of faith as that little kid when my son Thomas was uh, just a toddler. And he would run at me, full tilt. He had to have a relationship with me to do this. I mean, he didn't do this to anybody else but me. He knew that his mom was 5'1", <laughs> couldn't really do this. Uh, she's, uh, when she's soaking wet, she's 100 pounds. So, <clears throat> very petite. And, and so he only did it to me. And, and, and here was probably, without thinking about it, without being aware of what he was thinking about, he had these, these ideas in mind. One, that I was able I was capable of catching him, right? That I had enough power within my physical being to catch him. He, I, it, it never occurred to him, I don't think, that maybe I would miss or I would fall over until he was around eight or nine. Then we realized, okay, I might fall over. Secondly, he would have had to know or believed in, in all, of his, all of his being, because otherwise he wouldn't have done it, that I was good. What I mean by that is this. I could be capable of catching him, but don't. <laughs> he could be running at me, and I could be ready, and as soon as he jumps, I can move out of the way and go, psych, and have him just go plop on the ground. Right? It, it, I could have done that. But that thought never occurred to him either. Uh, so he had to believe in my power, my ability to catch him, and my goodness that I wouldn't somehow cause him harm, or as he's running at me, that just punch him in the face, right? There are all kinds of terrible things I could do as he's running at me. And the thought, or not even a thought, it's somehow just kind of part of his being at the time that I was gonna catch him, I, can, I could, I had the ability and the power to catch him, and that also, at the end of that, was a hug, and not a rebuke, like, why did you do that? It wasn't that, it was a hug. When he was really little, he wouldn't want to get down. He wanted to carry him around everywhere. When he got a little older, though, he wanted to get down and walk around with me. And I think of faith in those categories now. We have to believe, almost without thinking about it, that God is able, God is powerful enough. Secondly, that God is good. That when we run and jump, God won't go psych or hurt us. And at the end of that jump, it's a hug. It's a relationship. The reason Satan won't be in heaven is because there is no relationship. What relationship? If heaven is a place where God is, that's the place Satan wants to be the least at the end of it all. So we have a story in Job about Satan, or the Satan at this point, who seems to have at least some sort of relationship with God, but an adversarial one. Uh, they do have a conversation in the passage that we'll read today. They do have a conversation, but what they lack is that jump-hug idea. The person who expresses that jump-hug idea is Job in this story. 
somewhat misguided, I think. Job and his friends, uh, they're part of the world that they're from. And, and, and at this time in history, their theology, their understanding of God was limited. Uh, theologians talk about the progress of revelation and revelation uh, builds. And at the height of that revelation is Jesus. Jesus is the fully revealed word. And that's what John calls Jesus, the word revealed fully. So they had a, a more limited understanding and so did Abraham. Abraham had a very, very limited understanding of God. Um, <clears throat> so uh, just like when my son was three years old, he wanted to be carried around, but when he matured now, I mean, he, he wouldn't think of it as a 15-year-old high school kid, right? Um, when, when the people of God matured, we now relate to God in, in, through the church very differently than even Israel did in the Old Testament era. So we're gonna read uh, Job today. Uh, we're gonna start reading, I know we talked about this, uh, the, the themes last time, and some of the um, overarching ideas and big picture things. Uh, there, there are handouts, I believe, there's some, some extra handouts in the tables if you need. Uh, I noticed that some of you have been writing notes and things uh, every time I come, so I, I made it easier for you. There's a handout this time. And uh, Job has complexities that it's difficult to talk about unless you see it. Once you see it and you go, oh yeah, I see that. So that's why I printed out some of the, the tables and such we'll look at. But, bef but before we get to that, let's just do some reading. Um, I have my English Bible today. <laughs> I know it feels weird now standing here within my English Bible. <coughs> um, but we're, go we're going to read fast. If, if I had brought my Hebrew Bible, you know what happens, right? I get bogged down in little tiny things we never get far. And we're going to try to cover three chapters in one day. Can you imagine doing that? We usually cover ten verses. <laughs> so that's why I brought my English Bible. That way we don't get too, too bogged down. Um, although I, Job is one of those books that I know backwards and forwards and I actually know what's in the Hebrew. <laughs> so uh, I could tell you what's there. Um, all right, so Job, chapter one, verse one. There was a man in the land of Uts, Uts uh, we don't know where that is, like I said last time, whose name was Job. Uh, every time you see the letter J in, in the Old Testament, it's a Y sound. Uh, I'm not sure how the J came into English. Maybe in the older English, J was a Y sound. But it's actually pronounced Yov, but we call him Job, that's fine. Job, and that man was, and I mentioned this last time, blameless, one, two, upright, Three, fearing God. Four, turning away from evil. So he's described in four categories. Blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Keep that in mind, that those four things. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Uh, seven is a, a, a number of perfection in Hebrew, completion, seven days in a week. Uh, the seventh day, God rested. So this symbolizes for this um, a perfect, almost, existence for a patriarch. And then his wealth is described in, in verse three, uh, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. Uh, we don't measure our wealth this way, but the time that uh, ancient Near Eastern people did was during the Middle Bronze Era. I mentioned that last time too. This would have been very comfortable. This story would fit, fit really well with Abrahamic patriarchal era. And Abraham's wealth is measured this way too. So Job is like an Abraham-like character, but just not uh, is, uh, from Israel. Uh, and then, that man was the greatest of all the men of the east, uh, east of uh, the 
the river, Jordan River. So uh, when you think of east, it could be anywhere from Edom, Moab, uh, Ammon, all the way to uh, Babylon. So this whole uh, area outside of Israel would have been considered east. Verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of uh, each one his day. So they took turns, the seven, seven sons took turns, and of course they invited their sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would do this thing. He would, he would uh, consecrate them, rising early every, uh, in the morning, offering burnt offerings. And this is, wh- this is why he did it. He, he said this. Okay, they're feasting. A feast in the ancient world wasn't just food. It, it clearly even says they were eating and drinking. <clears throat> so there's wine. And he's afraid. What if in this joyful occasion they somehow sinned. Accidentally even, maybe. They didn't want to sin, but they did. And, and Job wanted to make sure uh, that their sins were atoned for. So every time there was a feast, which was often, they took turns doing this, so he would go and, and make an offering. Uh, Job says, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did this continually. The idea there is, he's, he, so every time there was a feast, he did this. Uh, this is a really important beginning because at, at the end of Job, I'm going to spoiler alert here, at the end of Job, God speaks to, to Job and then God's last words are actually to his friend Eliphaz. Uh, and God is angry with Eliphaz and says, I'm angry with you because you have not spoken rightly as my servant Job has. Now go ask Job to offer a sacrifice for you. So what God is saying to Eliphaz is, you have sinned that needs atoning and the person that can do that for you is Job, the righteous person, the one who can mediate for you. That is a Christ figure, right? The mediator for sin. Uh, there are lots of types. Um, Joseph is a type of Christ. When you go back and read the Joseph narrative in Genesis, he doesn't ever sin. Did you notice that? Abraham sins, Isaac sins, Jacob sins. When you get to Joseph, what sin? Joseph is portrayed in an in, in almost perfect way. Joseph also is the means to deliver, delivering his uh, brothers. The sons of Israel, sons of Jacob, would have died. So he's also the means of salvation, savior. So there, there are different types in the Bible in the Old Testament of, of Christ. And Joseph is one. Moses, obviously, is one. Uh, and here it is, Job, mediating for people. Um, now, uh, verse 6, this begins a new section. There was a day when the sons of God, uh, sons of God is a common reference in the Bible to talk about angelic beings of some kind, came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Lord is in all caps there to in- indicate that's that name that we talked about, Yahweh. And the Satan, the Satan, or the adversary, also came among them, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Where are you coming from? <clears throat> then Satan answered the Lord and says, from roaming about the earth and walking around in it, just here and there, wandering, is what he's saying. Hanging out. Then uh, <laughs> the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Since you're wandering around, do you know this guy? Have you considered him? For there's no one like him on the earth. So <laughs> God is saying, this is the best person. No one like him on the earth. On the planet is how we would say it today, right? The best person on the planet. 
a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. When did we see that? Remember I told you to remember those four things? So the narrator had described Job this way, four things. <clears throat> and here we find in the words of Yahweh the same descriptors, the four ideas that, that describe Job. Uh, then the Satan responds in verse 9. <clears throat> Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and his house? His house, of course, includes his household, so his family and everything. On every side, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the, in the land. So he's pointing out to what the, uh, the narrator had described. He's quite wealthy. He's got seven sons and three daughters. Things are going well for him. Of course he's going to praise God and love God. It's easy to, he's, he's really saying, it's easy to love you when things are going well. Let's test this guy. That's what he's saying. Put forth your hand and now touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, look, all that he has is in your power, in your hand. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So this adversary left from the presence of the Lord. Who started this discussion, by the way? The Lord. Okay, keep that in mind. It wasn't Satan who instigated anything. He was just hanging around. The sons of God or angelic beings are being presented uh, before the Lord, and the Lord says, hey, where are you coming from? Here and there. Have you considered my servant Job? He's the best. The best in the whole world response? Yeah, because you protect him. Hedge is a protection around, right? So you protect him and you bless him. Of course he's going to like you. So he's, they're going to test this theory. So verse uh, 13. We're going to keep reading this. <laughs> Seriously, we're going to make it two chapters through before we look at the handout. Now, <clears throat> on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, again, this is the feast that th that's happening, so their oldest brother was holding the feast, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the, the Sabaeans attacked and took them. So some of the wealth is now going. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. Ooh, they're killing servants. I'm not sure why they didn't take them. Maybe because they would have been too loyal to Job to be of any use. And I alone have escaped to tell you while he was still speaking. So the servant is still talking. Another, another came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up all the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans uh, formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Whoa. <coughs> Look at the storytelling. So we have the information about Job. 
Job is wealthy. He's got seven sons and three daughters. Ten kids. Lots of wealth. That's being tested. And that's what that was the agreement, right? You've blessed him. You've protected him. You take all that away, and he's going to curse you. Um, we know that, it, that Satan has the power now because God says, I give this power to you. And notice the descriptions. It's all natural or human endeavors, aren't they? The Sabians or the Chaldeans, the Kaldu people are, were uh, always considered very violent and vicious people. They're the Babylonian era people. Or a wind, <coughs> a great wind, or a lightning. It seems from the, these are all reports from the servants, and from what the servants are looking at, these are very natural causes. So last week we talked about how um, one uh, theologian and, and, and pastor considered the wind, the tornado, as the finger of God, but at least according to Job, it's more like the finger of Satan that causes destruction. Now, God did allow this <coughs> to happen. Let's keep reading. <coughs> in response to this, in verse 20, Job rose, he gets up, he tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Now, he doesn't mean to his mother's womb. Womb is doing double duty here. Uh, you'll see in chapter 3 also that womb uh, is a metaphor for the grave. So it's now using the womb in two different ways. I came from my mother's womb, a womb, the belly, uh, naked. And that's how I will die. I will die naked. I will have nothing. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Yahweh gives and Yahweh takes away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Since Yahweh is a name, he's blessing this name. Now, this is what I meant by his kind of narrower view. He's wrong, isn't he? Kind of. It wasn't the Lord who took it away. He allows this to happen, but it was Satan. We know that Job is kind of wrong here. He's not entirely wrong. Ultimately, it is God responsible for everything. So, but even despite his, him being wrong, slightly, his theology is very, uh, for lack of a better word, Calvinistic, right? Everything is from the Lord. Lord gives and Lord takes away. So then, how can I curse God? I, I will just bless God because that's all I can do. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. I know I said I don't want to get bogged down there. The blame there, there's an interesting word in Hebrew right there that talks about that, uh, something shameful. Uh, so he doesn't want to bring shame to God. He doesn't want to shame God for doing this. So he's angry, I'm sure, and he's hurt. But what he's saying is, despite the fact that all of this is from the Lord, from his perspective, he thinks it's Yahweh doing this, still, God doesn't deserve anything other than glory and honor, not shame. That's the end of the first story. The second story will repeat. It's almost like, how, you know how Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 tells the same story in very different ways? But this time, we get a rerun. You think it's the same story all over again because the narrator decides, I'm gonna repeat some words word for word. 
So rather than going further along the story, it's almost like going backwards and say, let's start over. So chapter two, again it says, Again, so the author's telling you, hey, I'm gonna tell you again. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them and presented himself before Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Satan, where are you coming from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about the earth and walking around in it. Wow, this sounds like we just read this. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I thought we just did. Didn't we just consider Job? Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth. A blameless one, two, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. <clears throat> then there's additional information here. And he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without reason or cause. I pointed out, <laughs> who incited who? Did you have a comment, sir, or question? Yeah. Same order too, right? Blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil, right? Right. Yes, sir. Yeah. That's why I say keep that in mind. And remember, once, once in the beginning, it wasn't God speaking. It was the narrator saying this. There was a man from land of Uds. His name was Job. And he was blameless, upright, turning away from evil, and uh, fearing God and turning away from evil. And God says it in chapter 1. God repeats it word for word in chapter 2. In other words, point of chapter 2, and one, actually 1 and 2, uh, I mentioned this last week, if we ever think, and as Job's friends will start to do, that Job is suffering because of sin, chapter one and tells you, no, 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 that's the exact opposite of what's happening. The four characteristics, uh, blameless, upright, and we can do word studies on those, of course, each one would take a day. Uh, but <clears throat> it, it, it basically describes Jesus. Blameless, without sin, upright, righteous, doing good things. Fearing God, fear the Lord is beginning of wisdom, is wise. And lastly, turning away from evil, morally superior. So when you think about a character like that, who do you think of? Jesus. No human being should be described this way, especially by God. But here it is. The, author, the narrator describes Job that way. Just in case you missed it, the, the author puts those four, those four words in the mouth of the Lord so that we don't miss it. So we don't ever think, oh, it must be because of some hidden sin of Job. No, 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 no. He is sinless in the story. He's blameless. He's without blame. He's upright. He's righteous. He fears God, and he turns away from evil. So <clears throat> his friends will start to say, hey, Job, there must be sin in your life, and that's why you're suffering. And we're supposed to remind ourselves, oh, no, 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 no. That's not the point of this story. That might be the point of some other story, but that surely isn't that one here. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> so the second conversation happens. You incited me against him without any reason. <laughs> and I think we're supposed to wonder, huh? Wait a minute. Wasn't it you? Didn't you start this? And I used to wonder about that until I realized... He did start the conversation, 
But it, it wasn't the inciting or the instigating that God was doing. God was just bragging. <laughs> Imagine being bragged on by God. God says, ah, oh, have you considered my servant Job? By the way, there are a handful of people in the Bible, only a handful in the entire Bible, described as the servant of the Lord by God. When God says, my servant, when God speaks and calls somebody my servant, it's like Moses, right? Yeah, that's what you want to hear, my servant. So when Jesus uses that from the parable of the talents, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master because you've been faithful to little things, I'm going to give you a lot of things. He is, Jesus is referencing back to the idea of being called my servant by God, and this is Job. God is saying, this is, this is the guy. So he's just bragging, and what, what Satan, the adversary, because he's adversarial, says, no, 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 you can't brag about this guy. He doesn't deserve your bragging. So he's the one that's instigating this thing. Uh, and what he's, at the end of that statement in verse three, when he says, without reason or cause, <clears throat> what, what Yahweh is saying there is, see, I told you, there was no reason to do this. Look, he's still holding on to his integrity. That's what I thought would happen, and since I was proven right and you were proven wrong, there was no reason to do this. Neener, neener, neener is kind of that ending. Without cause, without any reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. It's all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. And, and then, if you do that, then he will curse you to your face. Well, he was wrong before. He's about to be wrong again. So the Lord, Yahweh, said to him, Look, behold, he's in your power, in your hand. Only spare his life. So, the, the, the Lord, again, allows this adversarial character to do terrible things, but he sets the boundary. Don't take his life. This is a test, but it shouldn't kill him. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils and, and soul, from the soles of his foot to the crown of his head, and so Job, what he does, he, he scrapes himself with, with potsherds uh, just because that's all he, ha- all he can do. And he's sitting on ashes. I mentioned last time, sitting on ashes is a sign of mourning and grief. And so he's doing that. And it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, p- a pathetic picture. <coughs> then his wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. We mentioned her before. This is the only time that we really see her in the story. And, and this is the most natural response to this kind of suffering. Curse God and then die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. The suggestion there is that you're not one of those people. You shouldn't be speaking this way. One of those women, foolish women, speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Again, what he's saying is, everything is from God. Again, very, very Calvinistic almost. Uh, everything comes from God. 
good and bad. Now, when Job's three friends heard all of his uh, adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one, from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite. Eliphaz, the word Eliphaz is probably the closest to a a Hebrew name, but he's still not Hebrew. Temanite, most likely he would have been from uh, Edom. So he's an Edomite, (coughs) which would be just on the other side of the river, uh, the the descendants of Esau. So Edom, Edom in Hebrew means red, (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. Uh, here, here's why I laugh. Uh, Edom means red. Esau was a reddish kid. Do you remember that? And he sold his birthright for some red red. He calls it red red. That red red. And then they settle, the descendants of e- Edom, uh, Esau settle in this place called Edom in the rocky cliffs that are red. <laughs> so Edom, so this, rock, this reddish kid has, you know, uh, grows up, uh, sells his birthright for some red red and becomes a father of a country called Edom Red that lives in the rocky red cliffs. Uh, I think God has a sense of humor, so uh, <coughs> that's why I was chuckling. Every time I think of Edom or Edom, I can't help but chuckle. <coughs> Genesis, uh, that story of, of Esau too is hilarious because when he comes back from hunting and he's starving and, he's, and his younger brother is, you know, cooking his stew, uh, the story that, that <coughs> the, the way the, the narrator, the author, describes um, uh, Esau is, a, is, is someone who's so uncouth and so unrefined. Uh, and the language he uses is, give me red, red, I swallow. <coughs> Not eat, consume, but uh, the swallow in Hebrew, balot, is a onomatopoeia. It's a word that sounds like itself, balot. You can, almost sound, you can hear the sound of some, someone swallowing, uh, like the word gulp. So when he says, give me red, red, I swallow, you almost got to hear the grunt in his voice, right? Give me red, red, I swallow. <laughs> so, and Jacob is the man of the tent, and you know, he's very refined, and, and he's conniving, and he's trying to get his brother's birthright, and he does it through soup. Uh, anyway, <coughs> I'm sorry about that little digression. <coughs> so... Uh, <coughs> He's essentially as gently as he can chastising his wife, saying, don't speak this way. Uh, You're not one of those women. You know better. I understand why you're saying this, but let's not do that. uh, It's sometimes hard to hear tone in writing, I understand. Um, When we get to our last class, we'll talk about tone in God's voice. And for, uh, for for so many of us, we hear an angry tone from God but there isn't one there. And here, there isn't an angry tone in his voice either in the Hebrew language there. It's, it's fairly gentle. He could have said, you foolish woman. That would have been an accusation. But he's not saying that. So, Temanite is from Edom. Bildad the Shuite. Um, Shua is a relative of Abraham. Uh, Zophar uh, the Namatite. <coughs> Excuse me. These are all regions in Canaan on the other side of the river. So they're not Israelites. They're Canaanites, as their names would suggest, especially uh, Bildad and Zophar are not in, uh, 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 Hebrew names. Eliphaz might be a Hebrew name. Uh, verse 12. <coughs> I'm sorry, let's finish verse 11. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. So that was their goal, and friends do that. When you see 
uh, your friends in, in agony and adversity, we go to comfort. That was their intent. Let's not forget that when we start reading this, um, their words. When they lift up their eyes at a distance and they did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. Um, <clears throat> since we talked about that somewhat last class, I won't repeat that. But there's great comfort in the presence of your loved ones and friends in, in agony, and that's what they're, what they're doing. Uh, so the handout that I gave you, or uh, Dan copy for us, uh, what some of this is, is uh, almost too academic, but it's important. So look at the first part of that uh, handout that, that describes the setting of the story. And I've, I've given you the verse ranges there. The two stories alternate back and forth between Uts and this heavenly council that's happening. So verses one through five, it's the land of Uts. Then we go back to the heavenly scene. Then we go back to, the, to, to Uts, then heaven, then Uts again. So there's an alternating pattern, but it com- it's a circular. Uh, it starts in Uts and it comes back to Uts. So, uh, oh, the book of Ruth does this. The book of Ruth begins in Bethlehem, goes to um, uh, the fields of Moab, comes back to Bethlehem, goes out to the fields of Boaz, comes back to Bethlehem, and so forth. It keeps coming back to Bethlehem uh, in the story. And in the book of Ruth, that happens because Bethlehem is the birth, birthplace of David. Of course, Ruth is the great-grandmother of David, and it keeps coming back to, to, to that story, and the story ends with the birth of David. Um, here, we start with Uts, and he goes to heaven, comes back to Uts, goes back to heaven, comes back to Uts. So it starts, it comes back to where it started, because that's the point, isn't it? Uh, the, the heavenly council is almost background information you need to really understand uh, what's happening in the land of Uts, not the other way around. We tend to think of any scene where God is in, that's the more important scene. But what the author wants us to focus on what's happening on earth and what's happening in heaven is the information we need to understand what's going on in heaven. And only the reader has this. Job doesn't know what's going on, as we mentioned last time. So the two scenes, uh, we read it, and, and so you, you heard the repetition, but the chart shows you what's similar and what's different. Word for word, the same. It's almost as if the author copied and pasted the story from chapter one to chapter two. So if you look at the chart, verse six begins that story of when the sons of God are presenting themselves to the Lord. Uh, and the, um, the, if you read across the chart to chapter two, verse one, it's identical. <clears throat> and you can see set verse seven of chapter one and verse two of chapter two and then so forth, it, it follows. Uh, and I bolded on the right column, halfway down that, that chart, you can see, and he still f- holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause, without, without any reason. That uh, is standing out. Uh, 
I've said this before, and I said it last time, I think, too. When something like a repeating pattern develops and it breaks that pattern, we're supposed to notice those things. Just like Bildad, uh, I mean, Zophar at the end doesn't get his speech. Remember, uh, it's Job, Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, and that pattern gets broken in the third cycle, and chapter 28 breaks that pattern, so we're supposed to really pay attention to that. Anytime you see a pattern being developed and something breaks, that's the thing that the, it, dr- it should draw our attention, and here it is. He still f- holds fast to his integrity. Um, and then, <coughs> in, in, in following that, um, the accusations are different this time. So if you look at verse 9 and following there on the left column and the right column for Satan, in the first occurrence, it was about the blessings that Job received. So if you take away all of his blessings, including his children which we know from scripture that children are considered blessings from God. If you take away all of that, then he will curse you. That didn't work. So in the second, uh, second column there in verse four of chapter two, the reason is his own body. <coughs> and there's something about this. Uh, The reason I research a lot in the book of Job, and I, and, I, and I teach Job, and right now I'm working on a book. It's been a long process. The reason that I like this is because I know a little bit about suffering, <coughs> not as much as some. Uh, some of you know that I was born in Korea and, and in the early 70s, <coughs> and <coughs> that was before Korea became a more developed country. And at the time, uh, when my mom was pregnant with me, uh, there was a great difficulty in our home, and she became significantly malnourished. You don't want to be malnourished any time, but pregnancy is the one time you really should avoid it. But she couldn't avoid it, and so (coughs) um, I was was delivered through an emergency C-section, and essentially I was abandoned because they were trying to save my mother's life, and uh, they thought I wouldn't survive because I was born quite premature, and, and at the time, they didn't have the kind of technology that our, our medicine does now. So they thought, okay, this kid's gonna die. There's no hope for him, but let's focus on the, the mom. She lost a lot of blood, and she barely survived. And <coughs> so <coughs> I heard this story from my grandmother growing up. You're a miracle, baby. <coughs> you, should've, you should've died, but somehow you survived. But <coughs> having that premature birth and having been malnourished, uh, during uh, my mom's pregnancy, I, I have lots of issues that are fairly typical for that kind of a situation. So I've underdeveloped systems, basically is what I was told. So things like mitral valves or, or your lower back and things like that, that, that you're supposed to have. I have asthma and allergies, all these other things. Um, so <coughs> the reason I still have this lingering cough is like this, whenever I get a cold, my asthma then makes things worse. And so and I, I, I've, I've had <coughs> several issues with, with health. So, growing up, I don't remember uh, a time when I didn't have pain in my back. So, I have chronic pain, back pain. Uh, so, and it's just there all the time. And I've learned to ignore it. And, but if I just stop and think about it, oh yeah, it's there. And, and sometimes it flares up, and that's when my doctor and pain managers and give me good drugs to, to, to take. Uh, and I'm always afraid that I might get addicted to those things, so I, I, I'm always very careful with those. And, uh, but I know a little bit about suffering, not as much as some, but 
When, when I, there are different kinds. I, as, parent, as a parent, as a father, I know. I would much rather suffer than my son. We all know this. If you could choose between yourself suffering and your child suffering, we would choose ourselves. That's a given. There's something about your own suffering that you can't ignore either. It's constant and it's there. And when, when um, Job's body itself is falling apart, I don't know how you would not, at least at some point, consider cursing God. Especially after what you've gone through, right? First story in, in chapter one, he just did just lose everything, including his children. Now his own body is failing him, and he's just, the poor guy is sitting on ashes with a piece of uh, broken pottery, and all he can do is sit there and just scrape himself. That's, all, that's what he's doing. And yet, to his own wife, he says, you and I know better. I can't imagine that kind of response. And, and, and uh, this is where, I mentioned faith earlier, and, uh, and this is where faith comes in. If at any given moment, uh, when my son had been doing those jump hugs, let's say I, my back was acting up, and somehow he fell, what would his response be at age three, age five, and age seven? I thought about that. At age three, he would just cry, right? At age five, I think he would have blamed me in some way. But I think at age seven, he, seven, he might have asked, are you okay? Yeah, are you all right? What happened? What just happened? And, and, and the response of maturity uh, now, this is, this is where metaphor breaks down, right? And all metaphors break down. God is not doing this because God is incapable or God's back went out, right? So, but when something goes wrong, what's our response? Is it one, cry? Is it two, blame? Or is it three, wonder what's going on? At least try to process this. And this is the story of Job. The entire book now, from this point on, chapter three and following, is Job processing this with his friends. With great faith and maturity. Uh, Let's let's look at some some verses. If you flip your um, handout over. (coughs) Since it's all there for you, could could I get some volunteers to read... uh, Couple of those places. Could 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 one of you read First Kings twenty two nineteen to twenty two, for the rest of us? Yes, please. Uh, we're gonna skip uh, Isaiah. Could we get someone to read Psalm eighty nine five through seven? Psalm yes, Psalm eighty nine five through seven. Uh, and lastly, uh, the last one, uh, Daniel seven ten. Anyone? Daniel seven ten. Okay. So in any order, as soon as, as, soon as you find it. Uh, 1 Kings 22, 19 to, to 22. We, let's start with that since, since you have it there. Um, Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. 
And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets. Thank he you. said, you can stop there. So oh. think about this. Uh, you, you, we can stop there. So in that conversation, <clears throat> this is very much like Job, right? In the, it's a, it's just, there's a God is surrounded by these, uh, these beings. And God's, God asks a question, not where you're from, but who's going to go for us and do this thing? And one of the spirits said, I'll go. How you going to do this? I'll deceive. Okay, go do that. Very Job-like. Uh, the next one, Psalm 89, 5 through 7. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the, Lord, of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? a God feared in the council of the holy ones, great and awesome above all that are around him. That's it. Let's, uh, <clears throat> let's jump to the, the last one, and then we'll talk about this a little bit more. Seven, Daniel 7.10. Seven, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Thank you. So, and, and there are other passages that I, that I cited for you there, so you can see that these are not just once or twice occurring uh, uh, events in the Bible. Several times, uh, God seems to hold some kind of court. In Daniel, it's massive. In these other stories, they're a little more intimate. Conversations are happening, smaller. Uh, and, and there's a flexibility of language in all of these, and I, I've given you some of those, that language, assembly of the Holy Ones, council of the Holy Ones, the council of Yahweh, the court of the Lord. The, and uh, the idea is something like this. What does a king do? A king holds court. There are people. And since God is depicted often as this majestic king, uh, the, the portrait of the Bible isn't God simply sitting alone and, and, and doing things uh, just by, by himself, but consulting, asking for volunteers. Uh, and even the psalmist describes God as someone who is great, who's unlike any other God, or, or any other earthly king, obviously, who holds court like this. And, and so the questions that, that are raised by scholarship and, and in general is, what is this? Is this a fictional thing? Because like Daniel, it's a, it's a vision. Or in Job, as we said, it's, it is most likely an imaginative retelling of a, an event that's happened. So what is this thing? Is it fictional? Is it real? Just the frequency of occurrence, for me at least personally, would, would discount that this whole thing is just made up. Why would so many different kinds of authors, whether it be in poetry and praise in Psalms, or a vision of a prophet, or a description in Kings, by the way, in, in the Book of Kings, we know the Book of Kings is interested in history, in actual events. 
So the genre of, of Kings is historiography, so there's so many different genres and so many different authors describing this scene. So I would hesitate to simply uh, relegate it as just fictional, imaginative thing. The, the people who are attending this royal court of God are sometimes called hosts or servants, sons of God. <coughs> but it does, uh, whatever this is, it mimics or resembles or mirrors the ancient Near Eastern courts that kings would hold. And then this is what's happening in the book of Job. Job, uh, so in the book of Job, since this is a well-established idea that God holds court, that's what's happening. So it doesn't even describe what that court. It begins right in the middle of it. It's like one of these days that all these sons of God were reporting so they're all making reports. They're presenting themselves to the Lord, and his Lord's response to at least one of those sons of God was, where are you coming from? So give me your report. Uh, and the Satan, of course, is not a good one of those <laughs> reporters, right? He's not, he's not a, a positive character in this story. Uh, oh, goodness, is that the time? <laughs> okay. Uh, boy, I don't know if we'll have time to go through Psalm 28. Uh, Let's try to, to, to at least just talk about Psalm 28, because I mean, Job 28, because we're not going to have ta- time to get back to it. So if, if you uh, skip forward here, Job chapter 28. You can see by the handout uh, that the structure has three stanzas, three, three groupings of lines, 1 through 11, 12 through 19, 20 through 18. Uh, each grouping is made possible by a refrain marker that uh, you can find in verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? That, uh, those exact words occur in two different places to mark those out. <coughs> Excuse me. You can also tell that those two, three units uh, describe three different things. And so in the first unit, uh, let's just read a few verses there. In verse 1, surely there is a mine for silver and place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from the dust and copper is melted from the rock. Man puts an end to darkness and, and, and to the, the furthest, farthest limits searches out uh, the rocks in gloom and deep shadow. He sinks his shaft. All of this from there to verse 11 is the technology uh, of mining things. And he even says, like, even birds of prey don't know the path to these things. We do. So he's praising man for our technological advance. And at the time, in the Middle Bronze Era, think about this. In the Middle Bronze Era, what would have been the most amazing technology? Mining and smelting and making instruments out of those things. In the Middle Bronze Era, making bronze instruments and weapons, that would have been the height of technology. A few years ago, actually it's more than a few years ago now, ah, goodness, uh, 90s. In the 90s, I was working at Texas Instruments for a while. I uh, used to be an IT person. And this is when, do you remember when computer screens used to be really, really big? These huge boxes uh, before the flat screens? This was the, this was the beginning of the flat screen being introduced. And uh, I, was at the, I was also working on my seminary degree, and so I had some friends in seminary. And I remember sitting in the library one time talking to a, a friend of mine about a new technology I saw, this great, bright flat screen. 
It was flat, but it was brighter than the big boxes. I was amazed, because usually before then, when you open up a laptop screen, it was flat, it was thin, but it wasn't that very bright. You had to get the big honking ones to be bright. So I was trying to tell this friend, I saw a screen, thin, flat, it was brighter than the big CRT screen, and he did not believe me. (laughs) He almost called me a liar. He couldn't imagine it. He's like, no way. There's no way a flat screen can be brighter than a big honking thing. Look at all that energy it has to spend. And I'm like, no, 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 I just saw it at my job. It's, they're, they're, it's actually big. It's like 20, 20 inches. Of course, now it's like 70, 80 inches, right? It's like, no, it's called the LED, and it's, it's not the LCD. It's LED. And they're like, what? So he almost didn't believe it. Well, he really, I don't know if I ever convinced him. He thought I was bragging about something. I was like, no, I was just amazed. Sometimes technology is so amazing, it's hard to believe that we do this thing. We put people in space and satellites. We talk to space and our phones. We have, we have computers more powerful than my entire university computer when I went to college. This is more powerful than an entire building of a computer when I went to college. And I have it in my pocket. Technology can be amazing. And what this poem says is this. We are amazing. Human beings are amazing. Second part is how precious things, gold and sapphires and and these amazing, beautiful things, none of that compares or can purchase wisdom. As amazing as we are in technological advances, the poem says, we don't have wisdom. We cannot access wisdom. We can access the deep ground and get gold and iron out of that, but we cannot get wisdom from it. We don't have the means to gain it. And the second part of the poem says, wisdom is better than any precious thing that you can imagine. And the third part of that poem says, the only place that we can get wisdom is from God. And that's the structure of the poem. Now, the reason I connect this to the rest of that, the, what we were talking about is this. This is the speech of Job. This is the speech of Job that breaks that pattern of that three, three cycles, right? The Job, uh, Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar. This is the poem that breaks it. And in this poem, it's, it's reported as Job's words. Now imagine, he just said, I'm not gonna curse God. I'm in pain. You shouldn't curse God either, my dear wife. And then in the process is this. We don't know. We can do these amazing things. We can build a flat screen 80 inches wide now. But we have no way of accessing true wisdom. And you can't buy it either. You can't buy it. I know this. I have friends from Harvard degrees and they, they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on education, and they might have a skill. I have a lawyer friend who's a skilled attorney. Not the wisest guy I know. Wisdom is something that you cannot simply buy, even if you, go to, if you spend it in an Ivy League education. Think about this. We can't build it. With all of our technology, we can't access wisdom and as much wealth as we can at- attain and the precious things. And the point of that poem is, but then still... Wisdom is greater than all these things. And only God has it. (coughs) Who's saying this? Job, in the middle of his suffering, is saying, that's what I want. I want true wisdom, 
And we know where that comes from, God. And at the end of the book, God will speak. And, and Joe will be satisfied. Uh, at the end of the book, when he says, I put my hand over my mouth, please don't read that as, I'll shut up now. It's a, it, by the way, in, in ancient cultures, when you put your hand over your mouth, what it meant was, I'm full, thank you. Because <laughs> they will feed you. In the Middle East, uh, if, if you're a guest at someone's house, they will feed you and feed you and feed you some more. It's like a, they will it's not just help yourself, it's please eat until you can't eat anymore. And so you have to put your hand, I'm about to throw up. I can't eat anymore. I put my, it means I'm very, very satisfied. So when Job says, I put my hand over my mouth, he's saying, I am so satisfied with this. The outcome, yes, I'm good. I'm sorry we went over. I uh, wanted to talk about chapter 28. Thank you. Yes. You, you, I figured out your age.